0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and systems administration. I'm Adam, as always, and today I'm here with Sean McCool. How's it going, man? It's going great, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I think we're going to have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So the main reason that I wanted to have you on is I was hoping to talk to you about some of this like BDD and DDD stuff that we're kind of talking about a lot in the community lately and how we can use these ideas to like build the right software for our clients and build stuff that really models their business processes so that it's you know easier to adapt to change your requirements and stuff like that. How would you define uh, behavior driven development if we want to start from that sort of closer to the client side of things?
1: So the thing about BDD is I see it as being built of three pillars. Now, I kind of got this understanding from the RSpec book, and they have kind of continued to prove their relevance over time. So you have acceptance test-driven development, right? So you say, the functionality is this, I expect this behavior, and then you seek the entire time to fulfill that need. And then you have test-driven design, or test-driven development, rather. And that's where you kind of work out from the external interactions of your objects and kind of build your applica- or build your objects so that they meet up to those expectations, the expectations of the tests that you write before the code. Then finally, there is the domain-driven design, which is a, a, a full long definition perhaps. But I think to me, when you combine these things, you can see that The idea is that we're trying to bring some of that business context into the discussion. Now, those are really kind of technical concepts. So the idea of acceptance tests, the idea of TDD and DDD. But if you talk to any BDD expert, you really get a sense that what's more important to them than the coding, than the testing, is the conversations you have with the client. Those conversations lead everything. You can't have those acceptance tests that kind of start the development cycle until you have the conversations with the business, until you can say, here's the role for this feature. Here's the business value we get out of it. So then you can start developing towards those contexts and it really helps you to make the correct or more correct assumptions that you might otherwise make. But a lot of BDD experts will tell you that if you're going to do one thing, if it's going to be either have the conversations with the client or the business or if it's going to be developing a bunch of tests, drop the tests, have the conversation.
0: One thing that I thought was interesting, I watched like the video that Constantine put up the other day where it was kind of his like 15-minute kind of overview of BDD and introduction to BDD and I thought I kind of knew what BDD was before that, but he had a way of like really succinctly and clearly drilling the whole thing down. So the whole thing is just like about examples, you know what I mean? Like, and we can represent examples as like acceptance tests and Cucumber or Behat or whatever. But just the idea of like talking to your customer and rather than say them saying, you know, like, oh, we need like a user management system or whatever, which leads to, you know, developers kind of falling out of sync with like the actual business needs because things are talked about at kind of a generic abstract level. Really like drilling down and getting them to work with you to figure out, okay, so like... You know what is it that we actually need to do? Like, let's let's work out an example of a behavior that the system needs to have, and that like word example that like we actually used to talk about what our acceptance tests are and stuff has taken on like a much more significant meaning to me than it did before. I watched that video. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think Constantine's
1: really onto something. Not only does he really get the BDD stuff because it's it's really his job. He has this unique position in the industry where he can focus on BDD as a discipline. Um, but he's able to communicate it in new, interesting ways that I've never heard before. So before talking to Constantine, my idea of BDD was, was very different. But like you said, he, he comes in and says, can you give me an example of how this works of what this workflow is like? And this is just one piece of the puzzle. He has this, this way with approaching the conversation. He actually sat me down this one time and he had me explain, a bit of my application so that he can kind of show me his, his process. And I learned, I think, more from the questions he asked me than I did from you know his modeling by example demonstration.
0: Have you tried those sorts of techniques with any of your own clients or people that you've worked with since then?
1: Well, to be honest, I haven't had the kind of relationships, the kind of clients and the kind of products that BDD really suits in that context. However, I work with a partner and we uh, have our kind of side businesses and I use him as kind of the expert, kind of the stakeholder. And I make sure that all of my features and everything are run by him as if he's uh, completely non-technical because I, I do the technical work between the two of us mostly. And this is my way of exploring these ideas. And this is my way of, playing the hat, the the developer hat, the hat where I'm trying to ask the questions, get the ideas down. And by playing these roles with each other, uh, we have been able to learn more about our business and about the ways we think because we have to answer some hard questions.
0: Do you have any examples of like specific uh, kind of maybe pivotal moments that happened for you when trying to use some of these techniques or things that you really gained a, a deeper understanding of?
1: Now, coming up with examples is, is really difficult because I have to think back to the, these conversations and then everything is kind of going to be out of context. But I can say that one thing I really learned from this is if I have my features before I even consider start building the application, I can figure out what this application needs to be before I start. A lot of times in my past, I've sat down, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to build because I had a feature set that I thought was appropriate. So I sat down, I started developing, and then I had this thing that came out of it, and that's fine. But what I found when I did this with my partner is that we ended up changing the feature set over and over again because we're we're analyzing, okay, what in the business can we best automate to improve the business itself? Um, That may be interacting with other people, that may be organizing our own thoughts and organizing our own workflows. There could be a lot of ideas, but by having these feature files and by, we basically kind of wrote them on cards and by, by moving them around and looking at them, we were able to decide, okay, well, that wasn't actually necessary at all. These are more important and and the application started taking a completely different shape. And so that led me to believe that some of the difficulties I've had all of this time, instead of being technical implementation problems, were communication problems, learning problems, the kind of problems that come when you spend time talking communicating about the idea and actually learning what the business needs.
0: So what would you say the difference is between how you were identifying features before and how you are identifying them now that's leading you to these new insights about the stuff that you're actually building?
1: To be completely candid, I don't think I really understood business before. And that sounds a, a little strange maybe, but... I would come in and think that if I built a great product, I could build a great business. And there are a lot of great businesses built around products. It just so happens I never really had the insight necessary to see that every little thing I'm doing specifically is to lend value to that business until I started working my own businesses, until I started coming up with ideas with my partner and experimenting and seeing what Stuck, So we'd throw a bunch of ideas on the wall, try things out, and whatever stuck, we'd pursue that. And by working with the features in this way, by, by moving these around on cards and not developing uh, the, the software immediately, we were able to save a lot of time, try a lot of different ideas, and really focus on what actually stuck. Instead of having this this huge set of assumptions that goes into building this product and then making a business out of it, if you build a product... You're you're making all these assumptions about how things should work and why they should work, but then you have to go and justify them retroactively once you're done in order to you know have your sales pitch. If your if your core pitch isn't completely supported, isn't supported by your application, or rather, if your application doesn't support you know your pitch, then it it you're kind of in a situation where maybe this thing is doing more harm to your business than good because it just takes all of these resources away from the things that do work. It takes the resources away from the things that your business has that are its competitive advantages.
0: So what's kind of interesting to me about how, what you're describing there is, you know, you're defining these features in advance to try and uh, figure out exactly what your system needs to do, but you're also using that to kind of decide what's important and like what, you actually need to do to deliver business value and what the focuses should really be so when you're like defining these sorts of features and stuff up front how kind of far are you going with it like how much planning are you doing are you kind of just like designing like what's the minimum like feature set that delivers like the most business value and like iterating from there like if you look at this in the context of like an agile software development process or are you like like how much of this the feature set are you planning you know what i mean like what's your kind of metric for that or, or, or what's your kind of goal when you're outlining these features? Are you trying to figure out like everything that the system needs to do or are you trying to figure out like where's the real value and what can we sort of ignore?
1: I think it's really, it's just a small piece of, of the larger puzzle. And what what it is, is us being ready to drop whatever we're doing at any point in time if we figure out something better. So if uh, if we're coming in to, the, to these ideas, we have many conversations and we're exploring all of these branches of, of how we could handle this, or how we could handle that. We're exploring what could go wrong. We're exploring um, things that we don't even want to think about because we're so in love with the core idea. Because by thinking through those, you can, you can better justify your core idea if it's a better idea or you can better disqualify it if it's not. So... To us, it's, it's just another part of this huge conversation of what are we actually doing? And so what we're doing is actually chasing the value. So we're trying to find the places where we can deliver the most value, have the most competitive advantage, and really do something that's fun and interesting. And when we sit down and think about, okay, we have these features that we want to put into software, it's because we, yeah, we know how to do it most of the time just by being humans. Uh, So when I when we organized the first Laracon, for example, we had a tremendous amount of communication with speakers, sponsors, venues, caterers, print people. Uh, It was just a, a gigantic ordeal. So when we came into the second Laracon EU that we organized, we learned a lot and we created more templates about the exact kind of communications we'd need and we iterated on those practices so that we would have to do less work and it started to help us figure out that okay these things could use certain amounts of automation and that's the kind of thing that we can do that would make it so that we could be just as effective or more effective with less work and that's the kind of business value i'm talking about when it comes to creating these features so if i need to talk to a bunch of speakers and i need to organize their flights and i need to make sure that they always have the information they need then I need to either find or develop software that can do that. It just so happens that there's a lot of software that can do that kind of thing. But I think it's a really good example because it shows how we can continue to do the conference organization, but we can do it better. We can spend less of our time and give more value to the speakers, sponsors, and attendees. Everyone that we're communicating with, we can be more correct, we fewer mistakes. Because when you're sending out tons of emails all the time, it's very easy for it to make errors. Just a few errors are enough to be you know pretty difficult to to deal with if you tell a sponsor or a speaker the wrong information that's not great but if we use uh, software if we find a way to automate some of these interactions, then we can be less error prone and Honestly, if it comes down to measuring the amount of profit we get versus the amount of time we put into it, we can simply be more profitable. So that's the kind of business value I'm talking about bringing. And those are the kind of features that I'm talking about writing down when we're starting the BDD process. Now, what we do is we come up with a core set of features that we think will improve our business and we don't worry about anything else. If there's anything ancillary that needs to be added, we consider it. So you might think of a, like a membership login as a pretty normal core feature. But the reason it's important is because it gives you private access to secure data, right? So that's that's something that the business actually needs. If you're going to be dealing with a system that has a lot of secure data, you need private access. So we can write that down as you know, it's important for speakers or organizers or whomever we're targeting this feature toward. It's important for them to have this private access. That's how we can know that, okay, we need to have a login system, not just because we need a login system in every app ever.
0: Yeah, like the login system itself doesn't actually. You know, provide any value. It's like an implementation detail about how we enable people to have private access to this information that specifically exists for them.
1: Right. There might be other ways of doing the same thing. Uh, so they could call us up and we could hit a button and suddenly it's open to their IP. Of course, that's ridiculous. And we have, we have standardized ways that we do it in this industry. But yeah, the, the login is just a means to an end. It's not there just because every website has a login.
0: Yeah, it's kind of... It makes me think about... You know, those sorts of situations where you're like, you ask them a question and they give you an answer and then you ask them why and they give you another question. You ask them why again and like trying to just get to like, what's the real thing that you're actually trying to do here? Like, how deep do I have to go uh, to get past uh, your assumptions of how this is going to be built? How would you say the best way to, to do that is in your experience? Like, sometimes you can go too far with those sorts of questions and lose uh f- you know, focus on the actual problem. And and sometimes you don't go far enough. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it makes sense. I've seen, a, I've seen a lot of both. I've done a lot of both, I guess. Um, I just think that if you don't know why you're doing something, and nobody cares, then just do whatever. It doesn't matter. If somebody cares, then, you know, figure out why you're doing it and make better decisions. It's there's going to be every single feature. Every single thing is going to be a varying importance, right? So you spend the most time bothering the most people when the thing is the most important, if it's not that important, like if people don't really care how secure access is granted to your system, then, you know, going by industry standards is not the worst approach.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned before, like, um, that not all the projects that you work on, uh, really benefit from this style of uh, approach. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I have clients where I'm basically an outsourced uh, development team. They don't have anybody on their staff, but they have kind of low needs and maybe they even get their needs from being the client of somebody else. So there's, you know, some big corporation that hires them and then they outsource to me the the programming parts. Right. And maybe they don't care at all. How I do it, or maybe they don 't care at all about my ideas about good UX or whatever i mean it, it's it's a balance sometimes it's this kind of thing is important and, and sure I, I push back when I think it's important, but at the end of the day, if i'm told, hey, our client wants it this way. And that's basically the end of the conversation. I understand their business. I understand where they're coming from. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I'm working on an interesting system actually, and I don't need to win every fight. I don't, I just don't need to win all of those because I'm responsible for how I end up implementing what they need. And that gives me plenty of opportunity to Um, Think about interesting problems and solve them in interesting ways. And the things that I'm interested in is making sure I hit those deadlines every time, making sure I code only as much abstraction and indirection that I absolutely need in order to keep this application maintainable and nothing more. These are these fine-tuned, balanced type, I don't know, pursuits maybe that I currently find the most interesting. Yes, most any of us can code most anything. That's fine. What I'm not interested in is super high performance stuff. What I'm not interested in is super uh, working on really huge teams. What I'm interested in right now is communicating to the business, figuring out who they are, how I should work with them and really nailing my role. And to me, that gives me more insight into how to run my businesses. And I think that it's, it's just a more business centered approach in general.
0: Yeah. I'm with you on that. Like, Most of my experience as a developer career-wise has always been working on uh, client work, right? Like I've always worked in kind of the agency world. I've never worked for a product company. So a lot of the challenges that I've faced in developing software have always been around communication problems. It's always been... Uh, you know, someone comes into the office with an idea for a product, and they don't have the technical skills to implement it. And we have to translate what they want to do into software. So that's why a lot of these ideas are really interesting to me and why I'm more interested in some of the, you know, communication side of these ideas than I am uh, some of the technical, you know, patterns for implementing domain driven design or, or anything like that. So, That's why I was kind of talking about this like example thing in BDD is an important idea to me that I'm excited to try and implement with a little bit more focus than I have in the past because I've always thought of BDD as like a cool thing that I thought I understood. But having like a real clear, like definitive thing to focus on that will hopefully help me translate my customers' uh, needs into things that I can actually understand with hopefully the same level of understanding that they have so I can make the right decisions in my software – that are in line with their actual goals is like a really important idea to me. Is that kind of one of the reasons that's got you excited about this stuff as well?
1: So, where I come from, um, I've been involved in agencies, large companies. I've basically been kind of making the rounds for about 17 years. And so, I kind of feel like I've kind of been in all these different spots. But when I look back, I see these recurring problems. I see the situation where you know, my team was handed a bulleted list of features that we had to hit. We nailed every feature. Our manager was like, this is great. Good job, everybody. Then they show the client, and the client sends back basically a report card that's all Fs, red lines, crossing through everything, saying, this is not what we wanted. And so we went from being really proud of what we've done, nailing the deadline, nailing the budget, nailing all the features, to to the point where we are just kind of broken hearted inside because we, you know, we take our, our jobs very seriously and we want everybody to be happy with us. Uh, It's just human nature. And so I don't want to live my life like that. So I'm spent so much time exploring what is going wrong. And the more I invest in object oriented design testing, the more I invest in all of these things. It's not like this problem has gone away. However, I find that the more focus I put into uh, communication, understanding the context of the business, and in general, just being less of of a heads down in the cave developer, I feel like this is is closer to the answer. And I have a little bit of luck here because I've been running my own agency for about seven years, six years. And so most of the client work I've done, I've been directly communicating with them. So I was able to have a lot of those insights and ask a lot of the right questions because the developers are the one who are doing it at the end of the day. They're the ones that know what kind of questions they have. If you keep your developers out of a conversation, it's really hard for them to error check the the manager or whomever is actually in that conversation. So if I had a manager hand me a bolted list of features, sure. I could go and do all those features. Yes. I could give you a pretty accurate estimate of how long it would take, but they're going to be wrong. I just know they're going to be wrong because it happens over and over again. If I'm there, yeah, I mean, we can, we can both be wrong and that's fine, but we have multiple different perspectives now in the conversation, multiple different spect- uh, perspectives, like the manager and the development team, and we can, we can cover more ground. We can do more by, I really think that developers have to be involved in the company, like, I worked at this one company where all the developers were off in this one wing, and it was really nice and cool, and everybody else was kind of off in a cubicle farm. And we really felt like we were, I don't know, treated better than the rest of the company in a lot of ways, but at the same time, we felt divorced from it, where we were like estranged lovers, right? So we didn't really know that much about what was going on in the business, and this, I think, was a real mistake,
0: I think some of the biggest problems that I've run into uh, doing client work in the past has been anytime there's only been like one point of contact between the person who has the problem and the people who need to solve the problem, the two people having the conversation like the customer and you know whoever the representative of, of the agency doing the work is will will feel like they understand each other, right? Like, But they both have different assumptions that uh, the other person doesn't know the other person has. And I feel like anytime that I've got involved in any of those conversations, I've always been able to discover some of those really quickly. And it's made me think like, wow, like what if I brought in someone else, like someone from the UX team comes on, they're going to ask questions that are going to reveal totally different assumptions. And, and having everyone involved, like always leads to a better understanding of what you actually have to build. And I've never found that, you know, being given a list of features and then going away for six weeks and then trying to deliver that has ever actually met the customer's needs or has ever actually resulted in success, you know? And it kind of comes back to other important, higher-level agile software development practices in general. Like All of agile software development is about this sort of continuous delivery, like customers in the office with you, working next to you, trying to make sure that you're always delivering what's actually important to them and getting feedback as early as possible. And I think a lot of this like BDD stuff really is just giving some more uh, process and names to some of these ideas that are important at a higher level, just, you know, software development process in general for building what people actually want. So it's it's really interesting to see like uh, material coming out around it that has a name. And that's something that I've always found powerful in like any topic, right? Like um, I talked to Ryan Singer from Basecamp about jobs to be done a couple weeks ago. Are you familiar with jobs to be done? Have you heard that term before? I haven't. So all it really is at its most basic level is about trying to understand the problem that your customer really has or that your customers really have so that you can build the product that solves those problems uh, in the best way possible. Because a lot of the times... The things that you think what you're building is being used for is not actually the root problem that the person's trying to solve it's like uh, the best analogy i've ever heard is if you're in the industry of building making drills like electric drills Um, and you're trying to compare yourself to other drill makers, maybe you're trying to, oh, our drill has more speeds than their drill, blah, blah, blah. But if you talk to your customers, you find out at the end of the day, someone doesn't want to buy a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole in the wall, or they just want to hang a picture on the wall. So you might not be competing with other drill companies, you might be competing with those like little 3M command hooks that stick on the wall that someone can hang a picture on, you know what I mean? So it's like, looking at things from sort of a different perspective and trying to figure out what's the problem that the person actually has and how can I best solve that problem? And that's like a really simple idea at the end of the day. But because someone decided to give it this name of jobs to be done, now I can like Google for it and find conversations around it. Whereas searching for like problem solving doesn't lead to the source of conversations that I'm actually interested in because it, it it's not specific enough. You know what I mean? And I'm finding BDD and DDD to be similarly valuable names for things in the same way.
1: Yeah. I think it really
0: comes down to the language.
1: I mean, when we communicate to somebody else, they're not actually getting our full meaning. Um, maybe in some situations, but the kinds of conversations we need to have in order to create product are actually too complicated to really express the nuance and the, all the ideas in the experts mind and the stakeholders minds. But that's kind of the power of this examples approach, right? Where you say, give me an example of how this works. And then you're able to get out of them the workflow. You're able to get out of them some real meaningful communication so they can tell you kind of what they need to be able to do. And you can work with them and iterate and even help improve their business. I really think that developers are the right kind of people. As long as we're focused on the business, we have a lot of value. We we're very analytical. We, we, we do pattern analysis as a daily job. I mean, we have a lot of value to companies or, or really any anything so i think that as long as we can keep from being those developers who are head down focused on code all the time and really bring ourselves into the business we can we have a lot more to offer
0: yeah i totally agree um i find myself getting more and more interested in that side of things and it's really like identifying to me that like the reason that I like to build softwares because I like to solve interesting problems or build things that are useful, not necessarily because I'm interested in figuring out what I can make the computer do as much as that is like interesting and I'm interested in the technical sides of things when I really think about it, any time I've found myself building software and kind of gotten into it it's always been because I had like some other outside problem that I was trying to use it to solve, and it just happens to be that you know in two thousand and fifteen solving problems with computers is the best way to do it most of the time uh so that's just kind of where i found myself landing so it's really interesting trying to apply this same sort of things to other people's problems and trying to solve them for them maybe it'd be interesting to get more into the ddd side of things since we've kind of been talking about this abstract concept of uh, bdd and you know business requirements and stuff like that and maybe get into some more technical stuff what is what, how would you define ddd like what's important about ddd to you where you are right now DDD is actually kind of
1: hard to nail down into a really concise definition. So I kind of come at it with a little bit more of a story approach. So basically, we have this concept that we're dealing with a lot of complexity. So DDD is specifically about tackling really complicated problems. So there's a couple of branches of DDD. There's the strategic branch and there's this tactical branch. And I think that's a little easy to focus too much on the design patterns and some of the technical pieces of DDD. But what it comes down to is figuring out what the domain model is for the business and then taking the relevant parts of that domain model and encoding it into the application. So should I just go ahead and talk about what a domain model is? Yeah, sure. So a company Has this domain, this area in which they are competing. Maybe it's an industry. So, for for example, if you are advertising movie tickets or selling movie tickets, your domain is composed of things like theaters, types of uh, projectors, maybe um, availability, uh, show times, and then all of the marketing stuff that's relevant around it. But in actuality, it's a pretty deep set of problems, and there are a lot of other businesses in this field. So you have these experts in your company that have ideas about how this specific company could be more competitive than another and maybe pull out part of the industry for themselves. So most businesses want to grab part of the industry and expand, right? And own as much of the industry as they can. And this is you know done through competitive advantage. So the domain experts, the people in the company that have these ideas, amongst all of them, they have all of these thoughts about how to solve these problems they have these thoughts about how to leverage their advantage and that's called the domain model and what it really is is it's a it's a conceptual mapping that's shared communally between the people in the business who are decision makers about how something needs to be done so that is really not shared with everybody in the company generally but it's it's This person may have a little piece of it. This person may have a little piece of it. And as it goes up, maybe um, the parts of the model become a little bit more general, and there's a little bit more vision about what things are happening in the future. But the domain model is just a culmination of how everybody thinks about how to do their job so that their business can be the best it can be. Now, when you create software that's supposed to solve some important problem, for example, If you are uh, dealing with a concert ticket sales and you need to sell 10,000 tickets and somebody like Snoop Dogg comes through, you're going to sell those things in 30 minutes. So you have to do all these complicated things. You have to keep uh, so that when somebody comes in and says, I want this many tickets, you have to hold them in reservation so that when they buy them, the price and those tickets are reserved for them. But then they have to go back into the pool after a certain amount of time so somebody else can buy them. At the same time, you're being slammed from all directions. So this application has to be super performant. It has to be uh, able to handle all of these important rules. Because if somebody tries to buy tickets, they enter everything in and they hit buy. And it says your tickets were sold. Sorry. Well, that's not really good. You can't really build a business on that kind of service, right? Or maybe you can. I don't know. But um the idea is here, okay, if we're going to build this complicated software, we have to think very carefully about everything that goes into this. What pieces come together to make it so that we can meet all of these goals? And these are business goals. These are business processes. You can imagine that every single piece of this solution can be done with human beings, human beings and paper products it's just
0: not very efficient. So just to kind of touch on that because I think this is an interesting example actually. It sounds like some of the th- stuff that you're talking about to me sounds like problems that don't exist in the real world like so if you're talking about trying to model like a ticket selling process from the 1800s or whatever where there's like super physical tickets I don't know that they you have the same like you know the concurrency issues or holding tickets and stuff when you imagine like maybe there's you know eight people at the counter selling tickets and each one of them is allotted a batch of those tickets to sell. And the people are lining up to buy the tickets. So where do you kind of like, how much of that is like what you're actually trying to model and, and how much of it is like problems that only exist because we're trying to solve it in software. And is that still, you know, domain concepts when, Making the system performant because it needs to be able to handle like a high amount of concurrent requests or it needs to be able to hold tickets for a certain amount of time. Like, do you think that those sorts of problems actually came out of like the domain? Or do you think like holding the tickets for a certain amount of time came out of the fact that, well, they're buying it online. So they have to fill out these forms in these different stages and we want to make sure their tickets are still there when they pay for them. Or do you think that's still the domain? It's just how someone has defined the domain in the context of software. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a tricky thing to wrap my head around.
1: Right. So I would argue in, in your example where you're talking about the past, where we were pre internet and all of that, and you had ticket sales, I would argue that you still did have concurrency problems. You couldn't just be, um, you know, selling infinite amount of tickets. We, but the the difference between now and then is we have a lot more sophisticated demands. We need to be able to get these things processed quickly. And all these forms you're talking about, um, these performance issues, these are things that, well, more specifically, the forms and stuff, these are things that just allow us to capture the people's information. If we had a more interesting or more uh, functional solutions, then we would probably look to those and see, is, is that something that you know we should pursue but really there is a long history of this kind of thing it's what people expect and if you're serving up something in a marketplace to a lot of different kinds of people who aren't specifically trained in certain types of user interfaces etc maybe this helps solve that and that's something that the business would actually be interested in uh it it actually matters that they're able to get their products in front of more people faster so they can sell faster. I bet in any situation, if you're selling tickets to like the Coliseum, for example, if you can get all of those seats sold out, like in a very reasonable way, very quickly and have it so that it's, you know, done well before the day that people need to show up and all of these other really sophisticated demands need to be met, you would have some serious difficulties. If a hundred salespeople were lined up and there were only a limited number of seats, how do they communicate about how many they sell? So you might say, okay, let's only print a certain number of tickets, and when the tickets run out, then we simply can't uh, sell any more. So then you have 100 lines, and what happens when lines 1 through 60 run out of tickets? What happens to all those people who, who were queued up next, who were who were there for a long time, and then lines, you know, 61 through 100 were actually still selling tickets. We have really sophisticated demands. We need to be really good to customers because that's what gets us the competitive advantage. And I would argue that these are very uh, important domain concerns. And these are part of the reasons why some businesses succeed where others don't.
0: So maybe I understand things incorrectly then because I've kind of always thought about the domain modeling side of things as being... Finding what's like the lowest common denominator and how the process works, despite how it might be implemented, despite whether we're selling tickets uh, to people lined up outside of a glass window versus selling it on the Internet versus selling it over the phone. Is that a misconception, you think? I think it
1: depends on what the business cares about at that time. So you can break things up into a lot of different ways. You only really want to spend time on the most important things. Like DDD, for example, is a really costly process. You have to work deeply. You have to build this ubiquitous language. It's, and that's a two-way street. You don't just take the language from the business and say, this is your ubiquitous language. You're actually working with them. And this is like an ongoing process. And it changes. And as the language changes, as the business changes, the domain model when we say as the business changes, that means the domain model is changing, right? The understanding in the experts' minds of what should happen is changing. So our software that's designed to be like that domain model, to be, represent that domain model, needs to change along with it. So there's a lot of... Um, cost involved so ddd should only really be used for the things that are the most important most competitive um aspects of your business it's just too costly and and too involved for for other things
0: so that's interesting that you say that because like i think there's a an undercurrent in the community that ddd is the right way to build all software
1: well if you read the blue book really early on eric evans talks about this exact point i think that a lot of the problem with ddd in the minds of developers right now is everybody's hearing about these design patterns and they're solving real actual problems. So we have, we learned some new design pattern because somebody's saying, okay, DDD is pretty interesting. You should check this out. And Ross Tuck, a really great engineer from uh, Utrecht. He's actually an American living here in the Netherlands. He said once that the design patterns are like the gateway drug to DDD. Once you learn some of the design patterns that the DDD community has embraced, They're not necessarily DDD patterns. They're just object-oriented programming and interesting ideas. So once you start seeing that these patterns actually solve interesting problems, and then you realize, oh, these patterns are not new. These patterns have been around for a good long while. You start to get the idea, okay, maybe studying DDD has a lot of value to me, even if I'm not solving some great business problem. I'm gaining this value, it's in changing the way I see problems. It's changing the way I solve problems. And it doesn't have to be because I'm working at, you know, some huge complicated insurance company or healthcare company that has these complicated, ever changing business rules. You don't have to implement this across the board. And I would argue if you do, you're probably costing your company unnecessary money. And, you know, that really has got to be something that we have to control ourselves and keep ourselves from doing because that's basically the opposite of what we're trying to do, which is to offer competitive advantage to the business. And the more code we write that we don't need, the more complications that we add that we don't directly benefit from, the more we're costing the business, the more we're slowing it down, keeping it from pivoting, keeping it from doing what it has to do to maintain its competitive advantage.
0: When I think of DDD at its like most simple level, I think back to like the example that's at the beginning of that DDD quickly book have you read that one like the 90 page or 100 page kind of tldr of the uh, original
1: yeah i think i read that in one sitting like as the first ddd book i came across
0: yeah so the example they give at the beginning of that which is kind of like what i've focused on a lot in thinking about this ddd stuff is understanding like what's actually happening in a system managing like flights so at first your assumption might be that a flight has an origin and a destination. So you might have, you know, a flights table in your database that has an origin column and a destination column, but through like working with the customer and trying to understand what's actually happening, eventually you figure out that, you know, a flight actually has a flight path and a flight path has a bunch of different specific points that the flight path has to hit and the origin and the destination just happen to be the first and the beginning or the first and the last points on that flight path. And that's like a totally different conceptual model than this idea of a flight with an origin and a destination. And that's kind of like the the simplest level that I've, I've thought about DDD. What you're talking about with like writing code in a way that allows us to give our customers a competitive advantage seems like a little bit more of an advanced you know idea on top of that. As, does what I'm saying still sound like DDD to you? Well,
1: yeah, it's it's definitely like in, in the heart of it all because, again, DDD is sold as tackling a complexity of software, a way to think about how to handle complexity. So a lot of the ideas are just object-oriented programming, right? But it's, it's focusing on ways in which we can reduce the cost and reduce the um, challenge of managing these really complex systems. Because there's a lot of industries, there's a lot of businesses where there are an incredible amount of business rules. So, how do you handle that? How do you handle that really? So, this uh, reading on DDD brings in a ton of examples. So, the blue book has a ton of examples. The red book has a ton of examples. Everybody goes into examples. And I find that while I like Eric Evans as an author, and I find him a little bit harder to follow uh, when he's doing his talks on stage... By reading the blue book, I got the idea over time through the examples that, okay, this is about an ever a continuous process of refining and changing the way we think about stuff so that it gets closer and closer and closer to right. There's this concept that every model is wrong, but some models are more useful than others. So you're constantly trying to iterate to make the most useful model, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Sometimes I feel like people are marrying the idea of domain driven design to other ideas like the ports and adapters architecture and things like that. Right, hexagonal. Yeah, how true do you think that actually is? Like to me it sounds like domain driven design really is a much more abstract concept than some of these frameworks people are trying to kind of design around it to support it. I think a lot of
1: what where that comes from is that you can't have a domain model if it's not separated from other types of code. So if you have your database persistence, your REST API, all of these interactions inside your domain layer of your app, then you don't really have a the ability to model those portions of your domain model, right? You're, if everything's tied together, if every type of code, if your presentation layer code, your controllers, your routes, if they're able to talk to your service layer code, the stuff that handles sending email or other things like that, and if that's able to uh, communicate freely in every way with the domain, if everything's just talking to everything, if the domain knows about the service, if the domain knows about web, then what you have is like the big ball of mud, right? You don't really have that domain model. So in order to keep that domain model focused on the logic of the business, you have to have a way to support that. Now, you can support that without an application service layer. That's fine. I like application service layers. You might not. But in order to have a domain layer that represents the logic of the business, you have to have something orchestrating, pulling objects from persistence, hydrating objects from persistence. So a lot of times we use the repository pattern, for example. We say, go get me these objects And then you slam them together with other domain objects, and events come out, and things happen. But a lot of that's happening in the service layer because the domain really only has those business rules. It really only has the business logic. It takes more than that to make an application run. So I think the hexagonal architecture stuff, it's just natural for people to have different ways in which they can keep that layer pure. And I think it makes sense to figure out, you know, what a multi-layered architecture is and how you can implement one if you wanted to do domain modeling. So it's just the domain model pattern from, you know, you can go read about in Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture. It's been around forever. But if you couple that with an application service layer, you start to see what everybody is talking about, you know, what where all this hexagonal architecture comes from. And I think that if you're focusing on the hexagonal architecture that's fine. Just know what you're getting out of it. Understand why you have this separation. If you're just implementing it because you think it's the right thing to do as a programmer, this is the professional way, then you may be getting yourself into trouble. I think that you really, when it comes to any of these patterns, you have to know why you're implementing them. You have to justify their existence. Otherwise, it leads me to believe that maybe they shouldn't even be there.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that you point that out because I find it almost a little bit ironic, right? Like one of the promises i guess of ddd to me is it's a way of writing your code so that when you go back and look at it it's very clear how it uh, represents the process that you're modeling right like you want it to read the same way that people talk about it in the business that's like one of the ideas behind like ubiquitous language and stuff like that but i find it ironic that in trying to like decouple that sort of logic from the rest of your infrastructure you end up having to write like a lot more infrastructure. So like the ratio between like pure domain code and like supporting application service layer code gets like worse and worse almost. You know what I mean? Is it really? I mean, let's say you had
1: a domain model and it represented. Okay. So in your domain model of the, the experts in the minds of the experts, you have these concepts and these concepts have relationships. If you try to model your objects so that they have similar relationships and something changes in the mind of the expert, you can go change it in the code, right? And it'll hopefully make a lot of sense and it'll hopefully really naturally just help solve the problem because it's, it's a good fit. It's a, it's tied together conceptually, but you can ignore, for example, the application service layer and directly in your controller interact with domain objects and spit stuff out. You still have this domain layer. And you don't have to worry so much about that separation.
0: Do you think it's possible to apply a lot of these like DDD concepts as far as, you know, giving things like good names and modeling things uh, the way that the business sees them and still like an active record backed application? You know what I mean? Like without necessarily going all the way. I don't think you can
1: do really strong domain modeling with active record. I think it's basically it, it takes domain modeling off the table. Um, I think that once your objects have knowledge about persistence, yes, you can fake that they don't, but they do. And then you have to do interesting things like save an object so that you can get an ID or then save relationships to objects. You can get around these in some ways, but it's going to add so much boilerplate code to your models that your models just have... Tons of implementation in them now. I don't think you can have a real strong domain model using Active Record, but I think Active Record allows you to develop CRUD applications extremely quickly. You could insert records, query records, modify them very easily. I think you can do those directly from your controller in a lot of situations and have a very efficient system that you can actually maintain. There are a lot of techniques that you can use to make that more maintainable. Um, knowing those techniques is probably useful, but I think that. Pursuing DDD, studying DDD has so much more to offer than just being able to walk into a business that would actually benefit from it. Our studies teach us new ways of looking at things, teach us new um, ways of implementing things and solving problems. And I think that DDD, to me, was as beneficial as studying testing and, and how it changed my perspective about um, about programming or about our jobs. Even philosophically, I feel like I've been rocked to my core over the past two years.
0: The thing that I'm finding with trying to like decouple my domain model completely from my, from my infrastructure a lot of the time is I end up with a lot of like really difficult technical challenges to solve in my application service layer in order to support how I want to be able to use my domain model on its own. Can you think of any
1: uh, interesting examples?
0: Um, things like being able to hydrate uh, nested relationships and get like kind of pure PHP objects, say in my domain where I have, um, this is probably going to be too simplified, but a post that has comments, for example, right. And being able to send that back somewhere to get persisted now, iterating over all those comments and making sure any of them that changed uh, still keep their same ID. And, and it gets more complicated when maybe a comment also has like a, a nested Uh, entity inside of it that isn't interacted with from anything outside of this, like post-aggregate, you know what I mean? And writing the code to map this stuff into like its different tables and store it in your persistence layer in a way that your domain model doesn't have to be in any way aware of that. Uh, And I found that to be challenging a lot of the time in trying to deal with keeping all this stuff consistent and and not just like overwriting all the comments that were there with new comments. Like, cause there's two strategies you can use there, right? Like at least in my experiments in this specific example, say you have like, you know, your post in your domain and you're updating one of the comments, right? Someone edits the comment, say, and it gets edited on the post and the post goes to be persisted. Do you, Delete all the comments in the database and then just add all new comments from the domain model that had all those comments attached to it. Or do, does your application service layer know how to look through and find ones that have changed and update just the one that has changed? Like I've, I just find there to be like interesting, challenging technical decisions that you have to make in some of the supporting code a lot of the time. And that's where a lot of the difficulty has lied for me. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: This kind of thing is covered in the in the books uh, to, to no small amount. I mean, Eric Evans talks about how bidirectional associations can be really problematic and how to think about those. Um, then, you know, of course, your tooling is important as well. Um, if you're in C Sharp, you might be using, you know, Entity Framework. If you're in Java, you're probably using Hibernate. In PHP, you're probably using Doctrine. They're all very similar uh, in kind of their, their approach. And those really help with dealing with those associations as well, especially if you have something like that repository pattern and there are other ways to do it. I don't want to sell the repository patterns is like this thing that you should just always be doing. Constantine, um, Everzet, He has interesting ideas about how to deal with that. I've heard a lot of people with really interesting ideas, but I find that the repository pattern for me is, is working just fine at the moment. And, I can put really kind of specific details behind that. And if I, if I know how to kind of use doctrine, for example, I can get around a lot of those problems, but also it's in how you design the actual interactions with the domain. So, you know, do these objects really have actual, do they hold association details? Are you querying those association details maybe separately? Um, Everything about how these interact. Like if, if you are using aggregates then you have this kind of bite-sized piece that you can work with. And aggregates are really nice because they create these boundaries. And what aggregates are, are you have these entities that might hold other entities or other objects in them. And you interact with the aggregate so that you can make sure that the interactions that take place inside are following specific business rules. So you might have an aggregate route that is something like invoice. And you can never create maybe an invoice line item and attach it to an invoice without passing it into the invoice object. The invoice object can say, okay, do I have any other line items on this invoice that have the same product? If so, that's a violation of the business rule. You're not allowed to have it. And there, if it accepts the line item, You throw the invoice into the invoice repository, tell it to save. And then that's the only way a line item can be saved. There's no invoice line item repository. There's no way to save that into the database. And since we're not using active record, we can't just type line item save and have that stored away. The only way to do it is to work inside the aggregate boundary. So because we have the aggregates Isolated the way they are, and there 's a whole lot to be said about how you come to design these aggregates and how you think about building these things um, and there 's a lot to be said about interesting concepts like event storming as well, as far as discovery is concerned, which we might uh, mention in a moment. But I think that if you can follow a lot of these concepts along you know with Eric Evans or along with von Vernon, they actually cover you know here you can approach this thing in a way that reduces some of these headaches. And I think it really makes sense because they're trying to not only say, model your objects this way, but model your interactions with those objects in this way and think about these things. And, you know, just it's all so much about reducing complexity. I, I really think that we have a lot to learn from those books and from the uh, community because even after those books, there's so many people out there like uh, Matthias Faroth, Alberto Brandolini, Greg Young, all these people are out there pushing this forward. DDD has still. Been changing the whole time, even after these books came out. It's constantly changing, and you have different people on different sides of aisles who have different perspectives about it. And it, I think it only benefits us to continue paying attention to the conversation uh, because it's it's ever going. It's we have a lot to gain still, even if you've already read all of the content multiple times. That there's still so much content there to to absorb.
0: Touching on like one technical detail, actually, about what you were talking about there. Uh, just going back to the repository stuff, I've been playing with Doctrine more and more lately, and I find it interesting that like by default, like a Doctrine repository doesn't handle uh, saving or updating records, right? Like it's just for retrieval. So, are you adding behavior to your Doctrine repositories to support saving these models instead of saving them like directly through the Entity Manager, or do you have like a repository that sits? between your domain and the actual doctrine repository that kind of delegates off to the entity manager or delegates off to a doctrine repository. Like how are you architecting those sorts of interactions?
1: I think that's a really interesting question because I actually had conversations about this even last week uh, with Ross Tuck and he really feels strongly and he's kind of like the doctrine expert in my world, right? So he might say that he really looks up to Benjamin uh, Everly and I would say, you know, when it comes to doctrine, I definitely look up to Ross Tuck and I, I go to him and I ask him questions. And he's actually working on a doctrine book right now that he's hoping to have kind of done the first quarter of this year. And I'm definitely looking forward to reading that book um, to see more about how to interact with doctrine and more how it works under the hood. Because, you know, he actually brought up to me the fact that I think that not having saved on the concrete Implementations of these repositories is Doctrine's biggest weakness. So you have this entity manager, and he says there's a lot of weird, strange ways of handling this, like having multiple entity managers because each of the entity managers actually represent a unit of work. So it's it's kind of strange how all this goes and how all this works. It, it's not perfect. I don't. I definitely don't think it's perfect. I'm muddling through a lot of this stuff, talking to people like, how would you solve this problem? And there are for me very many situations where there just aren't clear cut answers and we're compromising. And I don't believe in building applications in some philosophically pure, beautiful, ideal way. I'm a, I'm a pragmatist to my core. And if I have to get through uh, some piece of code in a short amount of time, I will put down whatever in my editor that I have to, to get that done. But ideally, right. Everything that we do we design in a way that's easy to go and improve it. And we always keep it in our minds what we need to, to be working towards. Like we always need to be refactoring little by little into a better situation. So I think that it's fine not to have perfect situations. I think that it's unavoidable even because our tools aren't perfect because our tools aren't designed for us. They're designed for a lot of people. And even then, they're designed by people who are having to think through these really complex problems. And I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it not being perfect, but I definitely b- agree with you that that is a, a certain pain point with with using doctrine.
0: Okay, it's interesting, yeah, because I haven't really seen dis- too much discussion around that. So I think it's interesting to bring up points like that because it kind of shows that you know I'm talking to you about this stuff not because like I know you wouldn't say that you're an expert in this stuff, but a lot of people in the community look up to you for bringing these ideas. To the community, you know what I mean? And kind of getting people talking about them in our little circle. And uh, I think it's important to identify things like this where it's like, you know, we don't all have all the answers to everything. And there's some like, you know, kind of fundamental, simple things that we haven't all agreed on a best solution for, like saving things with doctrine. You know, it sounds like so simple, but the fact that, uh, you know, there's still conversations happening around what's the best way to do it, I think hopefully. Uh, brings a little bit of humility to the situation and uh, will help people maybe not follow things as blindly and you know feel more inclined to be able to contribute to some of these conversations and understand that you know we're all trying to figure this stuff out and uh, there's no like right answer or no one has everything figured out perfectly so it's interesting to talk about stuff like that to me. Yeah, I think
1: that there's a lot of solutions that work. Um, I think there's a lot of wrong solutions, right? But not necessarily. Uh, A right solution. Exactly, not necessarily a right solution. And when, when I'm going to conferences and I'm talking to the people that I really look up to and the people who have brought a lot of information to me, I'm never in a situation where the conversation is not like, well, here's one hand and here's the other. It's just nobody that I look up to ever says that they have the answer. They'll suggest ideas. We'll talk about it. But it's always a give and take. It's just this is the nature of what we do. If you ever think that you know what you're doing, like really like you are like the master of your domain. Maybe you are. I don't know you. I don't know everything, but there's a good chance you're probably not. And I think we all have to be willing to be wrong. I think we all have to be willing to say. You know, we are not the culmination of the current practices that we have. We should not get defensive if those practices are called into question. We are processes. We are just things that take stimulus and turn around and interact with the world. And that's enough. We don't have to be better than that. We can just continually try to have the vision to know what, you know, looks good, looks interesting, try it, see if it's actually what we thought it
0: was, and just go from there. Just keep iterating. Awesome. Well, I think that's a really a uh, great point to maybe end the conversation on. We've been going for a little over an hour now. What's the best way for like people to get in touch with you or find out about some of the stuff that you're interested in or follow along with uh, the things that you're discovering or talking to people about? Sure. My name
1: is Sean McCool. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on. You can just Google me and. I'm easy to find. I have a blog where I sometimes write stuff and I'm uh you know always working on interesting things like giving talks and preparing workshop uh that I'm going to have ready in the next quarter year. So I'm having a lot of fun, but I should be pretty easy to find honestly. If you come to IRC on FreeNode, join our IRC channel called Dev Discussions, Dev-Discussions, where we stay on topic and we talk about interesting development concepts and no idea
0: is taboo as long as we're within those confines. Awesome, man. Well, it's been really great having you on. Thanks so much for giving me your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been awesome. Uh, so if you're interested in uh, checking out show notes from this episode, they will be available at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash seven. And if you could rate and review us on iTunes, that would be really awesome to get more people listening to the podcast and learning uh, from some of these awesome people like Sean that I'm getting the opportunity to talk to. Thanks, guys. See you next time.